Alrighty. Well, it's um, great to have you all here today. It's great to have Hunter back as well. Great to have you. Um, Hunter's getting baptised next week. So uh, it's going to happen here in the service. Um, I'm going to work on getting a portable baptistry here. So um, that'll, be, that'll be fun. We'll try and make that happen for next week. Um, so hopefully it won't be freezing cold like any other body of water in Wangaratta at the moment is. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll try and make that happen for next week. But it's great, so make sure you come along next Sunday to celebrate in Hunter's Baptism. Uh, now, we're in the middle of a series called The Story, and I just want to share a bit of a, a personal story first off. Um, uh, grade 8 for me, grade 8, going back just a few years, um, was a pretty busy year. I don't remember all the minute detail of it, but I do remember that I spent an absolute heap of my time in the music department in my high school. See, grade eight, I was playing violin and I was leading the string ensemble. I uh, also had just been learning French horn and so I was playing French horn and uh, I was in the junior band and then I was also in the senior band and I was in the brass ensemble. Um, I played as well um, with a string ensemble, as I said. I was also in choirs and I sang and I was in the junior choir and I was in the senior choir and uh, I also did some other things as well with, with some singing things. Um, the year, year before that, I'd done the, the school production and that was fun. I had one of the leading roles in grade seven, um, which was really awkward because it was a boy soprano role. And at the production, basically I hit puberty. And so I couldn't quite get all the notes still by the time the production rolled around. So that was fun. That had just happened the year before. But grade eight for me was busy with all the music things going on. And I thought by the end of year eight, when it came to the presentation night, there was the grade eight music prize. I thought, gee, I'm a shoo-in for this grade eight music prize. No other person in the whole school was in as many different groups as I was. No one spent as much time in that music department as I did. I was there nearly every lunchtime in rehearsals. I was there early getting at school at eight o'clock for rehearsals. I was there after school for doing some rehearsals as well. And that was my year. It was busy, a busy year in that music department. So I thought the coveted year eight music prize at the end of the year I was a shoo-in for that. And I, you know, I thought, surely I would be recognised and awarded for the efforts that I'd put in and for the results that I'd achieved. I mean, we even um, were in a Steadfords that year and every year in high school I competed in a Steadfords, but we won a lot of stuff. Most of the groups I was in actually won that year too, which I thought, with these results, surely I'm the shoo-in that the, at the end of the year the music prize would have Aaron Wardle written on it. And so we come to the end of year presentation night. And I'm not sure if you've been to many high school presentation nights, but the one in my high school, every single band, every choir, all did all a performance as well as presenting all the awards. And so I spent the whole night on the stage in all the different groups and things that I was in. And so when it came that moment of the year eight, award being read out and the person being congratulated, guess whose name was called out? Matthew Dewey. 
And I was so upset because Matthew Dewey had only just started doing anything in music at the end of that year. He'd only just started playing trumpet. He'd only just started singing in the choir. And I was like, what do you have to do to get the award? Was that not enough? I'm not bitter about it. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, but in the great scheme of things, not getting a grade 8 music award is not a great deal. But a 13-year-old boy doesn't think in the great scheme of things. Um, all I could think about was, what does it take to get picked for an award if that wasn't enough? And then I was also thinking, what would all the other kids say the next day at school? What, what would I say when they asked me about it? And uh, I, I didn't get picked. I, I didn't get the award. I didn't get something I'd worked hard for. I wonder if you know that feeling. Maybe for you it wasn't making a sporting team or being benched in the important game at the important moment. Maybe it was having that moment taken from you and given to somebody else. Maybe it was always being picked last. Max Licardo tells a story of when he was young and he tried out for the Little League team, Little League Baseball in America. And the team were told, stay by the phone this certain day because those who made the team are going to get a call. And so they had friends over for tea and so he quickly scoffed down his tea and sat by the phone. He sat by that phone for hours, waiting for that call until finally it became ridiculous o'clock and he went and helped do the dishes and then headed off to, to fit in the rest of his evening. The call never came. I wonder if you know that, that feeling. Maybe in a much grander scheme of things, when you didn't get a call for the job that you'd applied for when you'd hope you'd receive at least the interview? What about when you sent your application in, when you tried to, to, to make something or, or when you tried to get help and the call never came? You know the pain of not getting what you'd hoped for. You do. We all do. So much so that we've even coined phrases um, about describing those moments he was left standing out in the cold. She was left standing at the altar. That's a painful one, isn't it? He was left holding the baby. <coughs> we, we have these phrases. And one of my favourites, he's out tending sheep in the pasture. You haven't heard that one? No. Well, well David, he knew that one. The story of David begins with him out tending sheep in the pasture. And as we look at the story today of David, we begin with the nation in chaos. It was a tough situation. The nation was in chaos. And the reason that we're looking at the story of David is because the next chapter in the story that we're looking at as we go through the story of God, it takes us to the story of David. 
we're looking at the whole scope of Scripture, beginning at creation and ending in Revelation, and one major event at a time. And that is in the story, a chronological version of the Bible, and it gives us a chance to move all the way through the Bible in 30-odd weeks. Last time, before the Easter break, we looked at the story of Saul. Today, we look at the story of David, and the story of David begins, really, with the story of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16 describes Samuel himself. If you've got your Bibles, head there now, 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's portrayed as a silver-bearded priest ambling down a narrow trail toward the town of Bethlehem. He pulls a heifer behind him. He has a small village ahead of him. And he has a lot of anxiety brewing within him. The people who notice him as he comes by wonder what in the world an important priest like Samuel is doing headed toward a forgotten hamlet like Bethlehem. Samuel, they think. Samuel, mothered by Hannah, tutored and mentored by Eli, called by God. And when the sons of Eli turned south, Samuel stepped forward and he became the spiritual leader of ancient Israel. And when Israel needed spiritual focus, he provided it. And when Israel wanted a king, he anointed one. At great hesitation, he anointed Saul. Oh, the very name Saul caused Samuel to groan. Tall Saul, strong Saul. The Israelites wanted a king, and now we have a king. They wanted a leader, and now we have a louse. Samuel glanced from side to side, sort of hoping no one heard him say those sorts of things out loud. No one heard him, he was safe. As safe as anyone could be during the reign of a king gone manic. Saul's eyes were growing wilder by the day, and his heart was growing harder by the day. He wasn't the king he used to be. In fact, in God's eyes, he wasn't even king at all. 1 Samuel chapter 16 in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So 1000 BC is a time of transition from one king to the next, from one era to the next. Three centuries of frozen faith have left the people in a spiritual winter. One writer describes the days between Joshua and Samuel by saying, in those days Israel did not have a king, everyone did what is seemed right. It was a time of unending corruption and then there was the problem of the Philistines. The Philistines were those giant, breeding, pain-loving, bloodthirsty neighbours. If they were the grizzlies, then the Hebrews were the salmon, and they just kept gobbling them up. They had everything that the Hebrews did not. They had the monopoly on iron and blacksmithing, and consequently they had swords and spears and iron-wheeled chariots, while the Philistines forged weapons the Hebrews fought with crude slings and arrows. While the Philistines thundered in their chariots, the Israelites retaliated with farm tools. 
There was one particular battle where the entire nation of Israel only had two swords, one for Jonathan and one for Saul. So it was a tough time. Corruption from within, danger from without. Saul was weak, the nation increasingly weaker. What should Samuel do? Or better asked, what would God do? Well, he did what no one imagined. He issued a surprise invitation to a nobody from Nowheresville. God dispatched Samuel to the town of Wanangatta. No, not, not really. He sent him to Dargo. Mm, not exactly. He gave him a bus ticket and told him to go to Wandilagong. Well, no, not exactly. But, but he could have if he had been alive today because Bethlehem in his day was the equivalent to a Dargo or a Wanangatta or a Wandilagong. You know, I use local places that I've never been that are really small. Um, but a, a forgotten hamlet, you know, six miles south of Jerusalem. A few hundred years earlier, it had been the home of Ruth. We read her story. A thousand years from now, it will be the home of a baby born in Bethlehem. His name, well, now if you can't fill in that blank, then we've really got some serious issues, don't we? We've got to be concerned then if you can't fill in the name of Jesus who was born there. But a thousand years before Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, it's the home of a shepherd boy. And his story begins out tending the sheep. So Samuel has come to this little town. I'm sure the people wondered what in the world Samuel was doing there. Prophets don't come to Bethlehem. He assures them that he's there simply to offer a sacrifice and he invites all the leaders of the city to join him. He also invites Jesse to come and tells Jesse to bring all eight of his sons. As it turned out, there was more to his invitation than Samuel let on. He was there to select a king. God told him to go to the house of Jesse. We're not exactly told how God told him that, but we are told what happened when he met with the family of Jesse. It's a delightful scene. It, it kind of has an agricultural show feel to it. You know, where uh, the agricultural show, hopefully Wangaratta's actually happens this year, people take their prize bulls, they lead them around and they show them, don't they? Or whatever other animal it is. They, they parade them in front. It was, it was like this was what happened for, for Samuel with Jesse's sons. They paraded in front of him. And so Jesse paraded each of his boys one at a time in front of Samuel, kind of like cattle on leashes. And Samuel examined them from several angles more than once, ready to give one of the sons the blue ribbon and call him king. But God would always stop him. It started like this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. That's right. Chapter 16, yep. Eliab, the oldest, seemed like the logical choice. He was the firstborn son. He seemed like the logical choice to replace Saul as king. King Eliab. We envisage Eliab as the village Casanova. Wavy hair, strong jaw. He wears skinny chinos and a linen shirt. He's got the piano keyboard smile. This is the guy, Samuel thinks. 
No, God says, then he explains, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Abinadab enters as brother and contestant number two. You would have thought that he was a GQ model just walking out of the tent. Abinadab wears an Italian suit, alligator shoes, black oiled slick back hair. You want a classy king? Well, Abinadab's got bling bling. But God's not into classy. Samuel asks for brother number three. His name is Shammah. He's bookish, he's studious, walked right out of the library and could use a charisma transplant, no doubt, but he's busting with brains. He had a degree from ANU, already applied for some postgraduate study in Egypt, and Jesse told Samuel he's the ducks of Bethlehem High. Samuel was impressed, but God wasn't. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So seven sons pass and seven sons fail. The procession comes to a halt and Jesse is quiet. Samuel looks around the room and he counts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then he looks and says, Jesse, don't you have eight sons? A similar question caused the stepmother of Cinderella to squirm. And I'm thinking Jesse must have squirmed as well. And here was his response. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. There is still the youngest. The word used there for youngest, it's a Hebrew word. And it's pronounced something like, Hakatan, Hakatan. I know you're, you're going to do it, so try, try it, Hakatan. You can say it with me, Hakatan. If you really want to get the Hebrew, it's Hakatan. Anyone else want to clear their throat with me? Hakatan, right? There's still the, the Hakatan out back. The more literal translation of the word would be the English word R-U-N-T, runt. There's still the runt. Do we have any younger siblings in the room? Raise your hand. I'm a younger sibling. You know, I was the youngest of three. Um, I'm still the youngest of three, actually. That hasn't changed. Um, and I can remember my older siblings early on would occasionally say, he's the baby didn't last long with me. But some never shake that terminology. He's the, the baby, the baby. Some adults are still called the baby in their families. Does anyone ever get called that? He's the, the hakatan. He's the, the runt of the family. And so here the father says, Jesse... You know, yeah, yeah, I've got seven sons. Don't you have one more? Well, I've got the runt. How would you feel if you learned there was a family meeting of your family and you weren't invited? I mean, oh, well, there's the runt. He's out tending the sheep. 
we've got, you know, we've got him where the runt deserves to be, on the pasture where, where he can't cause any trouble, just hanging out with the woolly heads. So that's where we find David. If someone were to carve the Mount Rushmore of faith, well, his name would be on the plaque and his face would be carved in stone. 66 chapters in the Bible are dedicated to the story of David. 66. You know, there's only one person in Scripture who gets more space. Jesus Christ. The city of Jerusalem will, become, will come to be known as the city of David. Jesus himself will come to be called the son of David. Even today, the emblem of Israel is called the star of David. We still know him as the giant killer who'll bring down Goliath. We'll know him as the worshipper. He'll go write psalms that we still read, poems we still quote. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We'll know him as a king. We'll know him as an adulterer. We'll know him as a man after God's own heart. We'll know him as one who struggled yet found faith and found forgiveness. But where does his story begin? His story begins outside of a sleepy hamlet called Bethlehem, a one camel town. Out with the sheep in the pasture, uncredentialed, forgotten by the family, the one who introduced us to the word Chakatan. Maybe you've been out in the pasture. Maybe you know the sheep called forgotten, neglected. Turned out, marginalised, misfit, cast off, too old, too tired, too weak, too... Fill in the blank of what's been called for you. Wrong age, wrong gender, wrong colour, wrong training. Maybe you've waited for the phone to ring. That's where we find David. And the story of David picks up a piece of excitement because we see the kind of person that God picks. We wonder because we know the kind of person that society picks. Society tends to grade us according to the inches of our waist, the square meterage of our house, the colour of our skin, the make of our car, the label of our clothes, the size of our office, the presence of diplomas or the absence of pimples. But God has a different measure. Again, he says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Those words were written for all the misfits of society. God uses us all. And these words offer great inspiration because God has a place for you. Moses ran from justice, but God used him. Jonah ran from God, but God used him. 
Rahab ran a brothel, Samson ran to the wrong woman, Jacob ran in the wrong circles, Elijah ran into the mountains, Sarah ran out of hope, Lot ran with the wrong crowd, but God used them all. And David? God saw this teenage boy serving in the backwoods of Bethlehem and Through the voice of a brother, God called David. And so David stood up and he walked into the family meeting. All the eyes saw a gangly teenager who smelled like sheep, but God saw something different. And the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. That is the one. What a beautiful promise to come out of this. The promise might, me, might read like this. God picks the nobodies, nobody notices. God picks the nobodies, nobody notices. God picked David. Nobody noticed him, but God did because God saw his heart. He came to be known as a man who was after God's own heart. In both ways, he was after God's own heart. He was in pursuit of God's own heart, but he also took after God's own heart because the more he pursued God, the more he looked like God. And so when God saw David, he said, now I can work with a heart like that. And here's what you need to know, my friends. God has said the same about you. You maybe don't like what's in your heart, but I want to tell you, you don't get the deciding vote. God does. And he has already cast his vote in your favour. He has seen your heart and he has decided that you are worth redeeming. You are worth purchasing And he has selected you. He will anoint you, not with the oil of a priest, but with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he will wash you clean and he will call you into his kingdom. Here's the big news. God is for you. God is for you. Do you agree with him? Here's a question though. Are you for you? We know God is for us, who can be against us, but are you for you? Or are you against you? You see, David could have resisted. David could have said, oh, I'm too inexperienced, I'm too young, I'm too stupid. He could have had a thousand and one reasons to resist that anointing that he received, yet he agreed. He agreed with Samuel's declaration and in doing so, agreed with God's declaration, if God is for me, then I'm going to be for me. You know you can be either your worst critic or you can be your greatest cheerleader. You can be your worst critic, always putting yourself down, or you can be your greatest cheerleader. Which are you? 
Think about the words you say to yourself. The words that make the biggest difference in your life really are not the words that you remember from your parents or the words that you remember from your siblings or, or even the words at your workplace, but they are the words that you say about you. What do you say about you? Do you ever beat yourself up? Do you find that voice that keeps playing over and over in your head with loaded phrases like, I'm not good enough, I'm too old, I'm too dumb, I'm too inexperienced, I'm too young, I'm not enough, I don't belong here, what have I got to offer, how could I do that, I'm just the wrong person. When you do that, what you're doing is you are disagreeing with God. You're disagreeing with God and you are agreeing with the devil. Because that's his assessment of you. And those words do not come from heaven. Those words come from pure evil. And when you agree with what the devil says about you, then in essence, you're opening your spirit up to the work of evil, the work of the devil. So you've got to stop it. I mean, you shouldn't tolerate that for one moment. I'm not saying that you pretend that you don't have struggles or weaknesses, but I do say that you must agree with God that you have been selected, you have been anointed, you have been called for a high and holy purpose, that God has looked at your life from beginning to end and he has decided and he has declared and he is the only judge in the universe and he outranks you and he has declared that you are destined for his kingdom. That's his declaration over you. And even when troubles come and troubles go, that does not change. Even when the storms come and the storms pass, that does not change. What God has said about you is determined by God himself. And the reason that stories like David's are in the Bible are not there for our entertainment, but for our inspiration. Because we've all been in that pasture and we need to hear God call us out of it. So the question that lingers, are you for you? you know, the Apostle Paul models how this works. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us. Look what Paul discovered. God is for us. You're valuable. You're purposeful. That he discovered that you're important to God. He says, fear not for I've redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So if God is for you, shouldn't you be for you? You can nod if you want. It's okay. If God is for you, shouldn't you be for you? But you're against yourself when you call yourself dumb or ugly or a failure. You're against yourself when you tell yourself that there's no solution, there's no hope, there's no promise. You're against you when you decide that you have no talent, no treasure or no future. These words work against you. And if you tell yourself something often enough, you'll believe it. If you tell yourself something often enough, you'll believe it. If you roll out of bed tomorrow morning and say, oh, terrible, this is a yucky, awful day, guess what? 
you're going to have a terrible, yucky, awful day. That's what it will become. Words have power. Power to bring life or power to bring death. And if you go to work or go to school tomorrow or Tuesday and you think, I can't do it, I'm going to fail, it's just a matter of time, I'm an utter slob, those words are toxic and they actually agree with the devil. So you tell him to get lost and you hold fast to the promises of Scripture. See, here's how the people of God think. They think like the Apostle Paul who said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all cre creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the passage of a person who feels anointed by God, called by God, living by God. And these passages exist so that we don't just read them, but so that we can personalise them. A personalised passage would read like this. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced neither poor health, neither hex debt, neither termination certificates, neither today's deadline or tomorrow's diagnosis, nor any job transfers, neither addiction or moral failures or anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's how David thinks. That's how Paul thinks. The world may call me Hakatan, but I believe I'm called by God and there is a reverent confidence that God is the only judge in that since he has called you, you must be worth calling. By the way, that, um, that telephone never did ring for Max, but the doorbell did. Later in the, in the evening, there was a ring at his door and Max's dad answered it. Max went behind his dad to see who was at the door and it was the coach of the Little League team. The coach came into their house and Max remembers the coach stumbling out an apology, saying he thought the assistant coach was going to call him and their wires must have gotten crossed, but indeed we do want you to be on our team. It was years later that Max discovered that the truth was a little bit different. It turns out somewhere between dinner and the doorbell, Max's father had called the coach and he'd cashed in a few favours. But it didn't matter to Max though, he was on the team. You see, your father has spoken on your behalf as well. And he wants you on his team. So a bit like Little League, you show up, you suit up, you get the job done, you know. There are still some games left in this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we bless your name. We thank you because you have called us. May we live in response to this call. 
Some of our minds are so full of toxic declarations about ourselves that we desperately need your help to believe what you believe about us. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this call that you've placed upon us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Thank you for the heaven that awaits us. Thank you for the scripture that guides us. And most of all, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Speaking of salvation, why don't you stand with us as we do sing and close our service with Mighty to Save.